This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, the recently passed spending bill had a piece uh, within it that's drawing a lot of attention, and it involves cuts to pension plans. The legislation would allow benefit cuts in so-called multi-employer plans, ones run by both the employer and by the unions involved. But the concern by many pension advocates is, is this going to be opening a Pandora's box and affect other types of pension plans. Wharton professor Dr. Olivia Mitchell follows this area very closely as a professor of insurance and risk management and business economics and policy, as well as executive director of the Pension Research Council and a director of the Bettner Center on Pensions and Retirement Research. Uh, great to have you here. My pleasure. Great to have you back. Happy holidays to you. Same to you. Uh, I mean, pensions are, are a, th- a thing that realistically they were... I don't know if they were headed all the way for extinction, but they were certainly kind of on that path. And and, uh, does this move come as a surprise or not to you? In the U.S., um, traditional defined benefit plans, that is pensions that pay you a flat dollar amount per month once you retire for the rest of your life, that type of pension has been on the way out for probably the last 30 years, in fact, since I started teaching. There's one bastion still where they remain in the public sector, but at least in the corporate sector, uh, very few companies today sponsor them. And I think this last discussion just shows, again, that it's an end game that we're going to have to try to face up to. So then why did this realistically get put into play now with this spending bill getting pushed at this time? Well, the uh, General Accountability Office, sorry, the Government Accountability Office, GAO, did a big report uh, last year, and it argued uh, that the multi-employer pension system was in deep trouble, that uh, within about 10 years, many of them were going to go bust, maybe the whole system would go bust, and the entity that backs the public, uh, sorry, the um, multi-employer pensions is also running short of money. In fact, the PBG the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which insures or protects these multi-employer plans, only has 4% of the assets it needs Mm. to cover the promised benefits. So this was a moment of crisis. So how did we get to this point where what what fundamentally went wrong within these pension plans? I mean, obviously, we're coming out of a recession, so that's probably part of it. But if you, you know, this has been going on for a while now, it has to be more than just the recession. Many of the industries where multi-employer plans thrived at one point have been in decline for decades. Mm -hmm. So construction, trucking, uh, bakery goods, that kind of thing. Also, um, the hostess company went bankrupt a couple years ago. And when they went broke, they left the remaining uh, pension plan $2 billion short. So it's been a downhill trend. 
over time, the government has tried to raise premiums to keep the PBGC afloat, at least in the multi-employer arena. But um, the financial crisis didn't help at all. Um, There were also caps on contributions that the employers were allowed to put in. And many employers have pulled out. For example, the UPS paid a certain withdrawal liability so that it could pull out rather than face growing liability. promises. So it's been a downward spiral. Your comments and questions are welcome on the, these pension cuts that are headed for uh, a lot of people. one 844 1-844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. It's interesting you bring up the trucking industry because obviously a lot of the unions that are out there uh, are not happy with this decision, one of which is the Teamsters. Talk about trucking, but they have one of the bigger funds that really is struggling within this whole framework of of funding that has been lost over the last few years. Well, the Central States Teamsters Pension Fund has been in the news for at least the last 30 years. Yeah. When I served on the ERISA Advisory Council, we, we were looking at it back then. Um, and currently it's about $17 billion underfunded. Mm. And so the problem is that any employers that can remain in business will want to try to withdraw. No new firm would try to enter that problematic pension fund because of the unfunded liabilities. So it's a death spiral, unfortunately. It doesn't seem like it's going to change. Is there any way realistically to be able to to help these funds out and and get more money in because it it doesn't seem like there is a a real good future for it. Well, in the spending bill that was just passed, uh, Congress did a couple things. They raised the premiums on the employers remaining in the system. They doubled them, basically. So that will help uh, delay the ultimate day of reckoning in some cases. But that's been done before, so that's not necessarily as novel. What's very different, I think, in this case is that Congress also gave the trustees of the plan, who are the legal fiduciaries, permission to cut benefits if the plan looked like it was going to go insolvent. And that's a very subtle point because in the past, benefits have been cut when the plan already was insolvent. But to do it proactively, to try to keep the plans in business, is a very different animal. Those those numbers that we're hearing from uh, a lot of the reports are anywhere from, what, 10 to 30 percent in terms of the cuts that would be made with these plans. And and when you're talking about that 30 percent level, I read about the central uh, people that are involved in the central states fund. They get about thirty three hundred a month, you know, after retirement. You take thirty percent out of that, you're down to twenty four hundred dollars. That's a big chunk of change to not have available to you anymore. But unfortunately, there doesn't seem like there's an option to to find that money. Well, in fact, it's true that the PBGC, the government insurance agency that manages these plans uh, when they become insolvent, does not rely on the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. That is, if the insurer goes short itself, that it has no recourse. Sure, yeah. Of course, they said that also in the case of Fannie and Freddie, and we know what happened. (laughs) But I do believe that it's going to be a very tough thing to sell to try to get uh, taxpayers to back uh, pensioners. Yeah, no bailout here. Probably not. So in the meanwhile, what's happened? It's not 
that benefits will be cut immediately today. Rather, in about 200 plans covering about a million workers, mm-hmm. the, the finances are so bad that the trustees will be permitted to review the options and, if necessary, uh, propose benefit cuts to people um, depending on their age. So if you're over the age of 80, you're supposed to be protected. Sure. If you're between 75 and 79, the cuts would be moderate. And if you're younger than that, they could be larger. At the worst case, the cuts could be sufficient to potentially reduce benefits in half, but it will take a vote of the participants. Now, there's a caveat, and the caveat is if the Department of Treasury judges the problems to be so severe that the plan insolvency would threaten the survival of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, Mm -hmm. in other words, a billion dollars worth of underfunding or worse, then the Department of Treasury can override the participants' votes. But realistically, is there any recourse on those votes? Because there doesn't seem to be. It it almost is a situation where they have to vote yes for this, or the the alternative is is no better. It's it's a lot worse. Well, as uh, Congressman, former Congressman Earl Pomeroy said, and I quote him, a haircut is better than a beheading. <laughs> and I think many people may agree with that, given that the worse of it's the lesser of two evils. That's a great comment. Jeff is in Santa Barbara, California, with a question. Welcome to Knowledge of Warden, Jeff. Good morning. I'd rather take a haircut than a beheading any day. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, if you have the option for early withdrawal or to take retirement benefits before your uh, proposed retirement age, if you expect the uh, endowment or whatever you to be insolvent in the future, is it a smart idea to start taking withdrawals earlier? Um, the guarantee that the PBGC, the government insurer, usually offers will be reduced if you start taking out the benefits earlier. So it's a, it's a tricky question. Um, in the case of uh, single employer plans, you frequently see companies giving them, giving uh, employees the option to take a lump sum. I don't believe that's going to be feasible in the case of the multis. Jeff, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Appreciate the help. Great. Thanks very much, Jeff. John is in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, with a question. John, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you very much. Uh, Very informative. Helpful to a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, I'm a very grateful individual to be uh, military retired. Um, Just curious as to whether or not uh, your expert there seems to see anything on the horizon down the road, even if it's 10, 15 years where any of the military pensions are going to be affected by the likes of the discussion material for today. And I'll hang up and uh, thank you again for doing a great job. Thanks, John. Uh, Thank you for your question. Um, The military benefits are not covered by the PBGC. Uh, They're guaranteed as as well as uh, Congress chooses to guarantee them. In fact, I have started to see some discussions about changing the pension offerings in the military. So um, never say never. I'm not saying you should worry today about benefit cuts, but I would 
my general advice to everyone who can is to keep working as long as you can, because that's the best way to try to uh, husband your nest egg and protect it so that you don't have to draw on it very, very long. Great, John. Thanks. Great, John. Thanks very much for the call. one 844 is the number. If you'd like to uh, jump in and uh, join us in the conversation, we're talking with uh, Morton Professor Dr. Olivia Mitchell, uh, who follows this area very closely, talking about uh, the pension cuts that are uh, put into the spending bill that just passed uh, over the weekend. I guess from a military perspective, it, it would stun me if there were cuts in the future, because I would think that a military pension would be the the one thing that the government would not want to touch in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, you know, finances are one thing, but that that's a hard thing to cut. Oh, absolutely. And I would say that Congress has, over the years, protected uh, military benefits. But we all are aware that depending on when you served and when you left, the benefits are not all equal. Sure, yeah. And, you know, and health care is probably the biggest uh, issue that's been up in the news lately because the quality of the health care benefits <laughs> hasn't always been what we would have expected for our service people. <laughs> so, so things are very dynamic, even in the military. And, and yeah, especially with all the military problems that we saw recently with the VA, uh, just trying to get to uh, some of those facilities and get some of the, the care taken care of. It's, exactly. It's a huge, huge issue. one eight four four wharton one 942 7866 is the number. Overall, though, does part of this play into the fact that, that there has been a little bit of a shift in terms of the viewpoint on unions over the last few years in terms of the numbers of people joining unions seem to be down a little bit from, say, where they were that you know 30 years ago at the height of the Teamsters. It's, it's not the same as it was back then. The percentage of the U.S. workforce that's unionized has been dropping like a stone. Now, obviously, this has given a pause to many folks in the labor movement. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, when the multi-employer Labor Relations Act was passed back in the 30s. Um, that was the time when there was a great opportunity to strengthen the pensions and make sure they were in good shape for the next hundred years. Yeah. That was not done very successfully. So unfortunately, people who are retired or hoping to retire today with a multi-employer benefit, I think really have to look hard at both the firms that sponsor them and the union representatives that should have made sure they were better funded and better invested. It, it really does end up being a, a situation where the person himself or herself really has to they have to take stock of their entire process. They can't just put it in the hands of of their union or even their investment officer. They have to have firsthand knowledge of what's going on and what's happening on a daily basis so that they don't get caught and, and lose a lot of money when, when it comes time for retirement. I think that's true. And in, in past history, recent history in the case of Detroit um, and other sure. cities across the country where they've, people have been facing potential benefit cuts also reinforces that notion that you can't rely on others to manage everything for you. You have to be savvy, save a lot more, work a lot longer and potentially expect a little bit less. Well, the Detroit situation uh, w would seem to go back to the line you brought up just a second ago, that it is better to take a haircut than a beheading because the potential in Detroit was certainly there for a lot of people to lose their heads, uh, you know, basically in terms of their retirement. 
And no one likes to think of a situation where one might be 75, 85, 95, or heaven forbid, 105 years old and worry about the benefit being cut, worried about the health care being taken away and so on. But the reality is the promises that were made were not properly financed, and they're still not being properly financed. If I might add, the whole Social Security insolvency question should be put on the plate as well because we're not doing a good job financing that fundamental pillar of our nation's retirement system either. Well, and a lot has been written, obviously, about Social Security, but also Medicare as well, that those two pieces are so important to you know, the daily being of, of the United States and for people once they get into retirement, that to lose those in any way, shape, or form really puts a crimp in the plans of millions of millions of Americans. Well, that's absolutely true. And you see the same thing over in Europe. This week, for example, I believe the Belgians were not only going on strike, but closing the airspace over Belgium because the government was seeking to raise the retirement age, I believe, from 65 to 67. So this is is a big issue, and these generational conflicts are going to become much more fraught. Well, is it more of a generational shift that we are seeing overall when you think about uh, people that are in anywhere, maybe let's say from 40 on down to, to 20s, are used to more of the, hey, you know, I need to save for retirement through my 401k. Whereas people in the older generations, it was more prevalent with manufacturing and, and the height of Detroit and with the auto industry uh, and the Teamsters back then, that that pensions were a, a just a huge part of what people expected to have when they got to retirement. It's just not that way anymore. I'm fond of uh, the phrase that says you only get old once. Um, The problem is that many of us, I'm a baby boomer, look to our parents, and our parents still had pretty secure defined benefit plans. They had a well-behaved Social Security and Medicare system. Their houses grew in value. That was the golden age of retirement. And I think many of us think, oh, well, the same will be there for us. But the reality is that's not true anymore. I I know specifically my mom, my dad, worked for the Philadelphia Electric Company for more than 30 years, and my mom still has the benefits from his plan from Philadelphia Electric back then. But she has told me so many times how those benefits have changed especially in the last decade, that it's not even close to what she had even 20 years ago. It's, it's totally different. Well, I think that's true. The other issue is that the corporations that sponsored these pension plans, in many cases, didn't really know what they were getting into. So sure. they made yeah. promises and they bargained benefits without setting aside the necessary amount of cash to be sure the benefits could be paid. On top of that, longevity is increasing dramatically, so people are much more likely. In fact, one of my colleagues the other day said to me, he's a demographer, that the baby that's born, there's already been a baby born today that will live to be 200 years of age. In other words, longevity is real and it's before us. And that was something that pension plans back in the 40s and 50s never countenanced. Dave is in Medford, New Jersey, across the bridge from us. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. And a great topic. Um, my question is really about my brother. He's been a Teamster in the Philadelphia area for probably 28 years. Uh, he'll be 55 on January 1. Uh, his his decision is to, does he uh, take his pension and get, I think, about $3,800 a month, 
or should he wait two more years to get the full 30 and pick up another three or four hundred dollars a month in the pension and i guess my curious is, is how secure is is that in that short time frame and is it okay for him to wait I don't happen to know the funding situation of the Philadelphia Teamsters, and that's something that he should definitely inquire about. Um, I guess the benefit of taking it two years earlier is those two years' worth of extra benefits. On the other hand, given this new legislation, um, I don't think that taking it earlier or later will change the stability of the plan. If it's underfunded, seriously, they're probably going to cut benefits sooner or later, and maybe taking it sooner could, could make a difference. All right, Dave. If he, if he takes it sooner, is he grandfathered into, or will he have to take less money if they cut the benefits? If the benefits have to be cut in the view of the trustees, then, yeah, he will take less because he's younger than the age 80 guaranteed protection age. Hmm. Okay. Dave, well, thanks very much for your information. Dave, thanks very much for the call. A few more minutes with uh, Dr. Olivia Mitchell. Uh, your questions are welcome. 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866 is the number. We talked about how, in some respects, this is a, a little bit of a generational shift uh, because of the fact that you know people in their 20s and 30s don't don't realistically have that uh, you know as a fallback anymore. Uh, I guess from that perspective... From that age grouping, it's a very good thing that they don't have to worry about this potential problem in terms of pensions. It, it won't even be a, a factor for most of them uh, when you're talking about when they reach age, age 55. Well, first of all, age 55 is young. That's true. So That's right. Age 65. teach our children and grandchildren that uh, they're not going to retire before they're 75 or 80 <laughs> years of age. Um, the big thing that defined benefit pensions used to be able to manage well was longevity risk. They would continue paying you a monthly benefit until you died, no matter whether you lived to be very old or whether you passed away young. And they could do that because they had risk pooling going on within the participant pool so that there was a transfer between people who passed away soon and people who lived long. That is no longer available in most defined contribution or 401k plans. Having said that, I will um, point out that the administration this year has tried to make it easier for people to get longevity protection, that is to buy an income stream for life, mm-hmm. within 401k plans. Mm-hmm. And so that initiative, I think, is very, very important given the growth and spread of those defined contribution benefits. I, I read that there are some, I guess, about 1,400 or so of these multi-employer funds around the country. And, and the numbers I saw that it's really about 200, maybe 250 that are the ones that are, are in serious trouble. In terms of the other ones, are, are they uh, set up in a little bit of a different structure where this problem is not a concern now, but maybe it will be, say, in five to 10 years down the road? Well, probably, but uh, we don't really know. And one reason that it's so difficult to get a hold on the uh, fate of these plans is that the accounting and the actuarial professions have allowed smoothing to be used in the reporting of assets and liabilities so that if there's a hit on the assets, such as there was in 2008, 2009, you might not actually see that play out until a period of years has passed. So it's a little bit tricky, and we'll have to keep our eyes open to see how things emerge. But that really does play back to the point we were talking about, is you have to be very much on top of this right now, because realistically, most people can't look out 
you know, seven, ten years and say, well, I know it's going to happen then. So, I, I, you know, it, it really does put this back on the onus of the people that the, the wage earners around the country to make sure that they know what's going on. Well, I would agree with you, but I, again, would caveat that because I've done a lot of research on financial literacy, or should I say the lack of financial literacy across the country. And um, it's very hard to get people to understand even something very straightforward, like how long should you try to protect against living in retirement? Sure. Life expectancy is the wrong number because 50% of the people live longer than the life expectancy. I worry about living to be 110. (laughs) Uh, My mother's 94 and she doesn't show any sign of going anywhere. So family history suggests keep working, keep saving. A friend of mine was was just talking the other day about uh, a lady she knew who was 103 and still driving. You know that that that's that that's and talk about living longer uh, and longer. Vanessa is in Atlanta, Georgia, with a question. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I just wanted to make a comment because um, there was something said earlier about the younger generation not having uh, this issue because of our 401k plan opportunities, and I just want to make it clear that I'm in my 20s right now. Um, my great grandfather, he passed away this May. He lived to be 99 years old, and he was collecting a pension from the post office. He collected that pension longer than he actually worked for the post office, which I thought was funny. But I just wanted to make a comment to um, there was something about we don't have to deal with the issue. And I was thinking, what about our parents and their grandparents who, who can no longer collect these pensions? We are going to have to be the ones who take care of them if they can't cash out on their years in the workforce. So I just wanted to make that comment that this these problems affect everyone, no matter what sure. generation. Yeah. Sure, we could protect our own financial wealth long term, but you know I'm going to have to take care of my grandmother, or my my great grandmother, or my mother because they can't rely on these things. You know what I'm saying for for the future. Great comment. I think that's an excellent point. Um, one of the things, though, that's changed a lot in the last thirty or forty years is that children, yourself apart. I, I think, are no longer quite as willing and or able to take care of their parents or grandparents as they were in the old days. Or in some countries, for example, in Japan, still 65% of the elderly live with their children. But with changes in marital patterns, divorce patterns, and so forth, we see more and more people getting to retirement without a close relationship with their children. So I, I congratulate you on your sense of responsibility, but not everybody will go that route. Vanessa, thanks very much for the call. Great, uh, great question and great point, because uh, obviously that, that that's a huge thing right now that, that you have to take a, take a stock of is the fact that if you're younger and your parents can't or grandparents can't count on that, you know, you want you need to really put that on your plate if you're going to help them out. Well, you know, this is interesting because there's been a big discussion about how we should, as a nation, as individuals, try to finance our nursing home expenses, long-term care. And one of the things I've started to have uh, conversations with around with baby boomers is should the baby boomer children who are in their 60s buy long-term care insurance for their parents (laughs) so that their parents don't end up eroding the few pennies worth that their children, their offspring might have saved for their own retirement. So it's a very important cross-generational challenge. 
Olivia, thanks very much for coming in. Great information, and uh, I think we're going to be seeing this play out even more uh, here in the next uh, few months and a couple of years to come. Thanks very much My for pleasure. coming in. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.